Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Traeger Grills, Costa Sunglasses, Turtle Box Audio, and Orvis Fly Fishing. For generations, those who love the outdoors have tried to capture its draw. We do this through images, writing, and fireside stories told with good friends and strong drinks. For Joe Cermelli, this pursuit has become his career. Over the past 17 years, Joe has dedicated his life to informing and inspiring others through his writing, videos, and podcasts. After a great run as the fishing editor of Field & Stream, Joe is now the senior fishing editor at The Meat Eater and the host of the popular fishing podcast, Bent. Joe's love for fishing is contagious, and he's certainly always good for a few laughs. In this podcast, we discuss the importance of being comfortable in your own skin, why he loves pursuing and eating snakeheads and other overlooked fish, and embracing your own home waters, even if that's New Jersey. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? Out? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast and making some time to sit down and share a little bit about what you guys have going on with the Bent Podcast and and Meat Eater. And uh, you have a long history in the uh, outdoor community (laughs) and uh, history for better, for worse. um, And I'm looking forward to talking about some of that. But before all of that, I'd love just to hear about how you first fell in love with the outdoors and really what hooked you. Sure, man. I appreciate uh, being here, Hunter. I I was laughing when you said a long history because to me it feels like a minute. It's been like 15, 16 years, but it it all it all went by so fast that uh, it's it's crazy to think about it like that. But um, yeah, man. I mean, fishing for me, gosh, that's just always something that's been in the family. I mean, my family has always had a boat, whether it was me and my dad's boat, my grandfather had a boat growing up, and of course, I'm I'm from Jersey, so. Uh, you know, a lot of people love to make fun of Jersey, right? It's the armpit of the nation. <laughs> However, uh, I've, I've traveled to a million places, and I can I can absolutely say there's uh, there's a bunch of places that I would love to have like a second home, but there's nowhere else I'd rather live than than in this area because to grow up with the variety of fishing that we have here, you know, from cold water trout to the coast to jogging a little south for catfish. Um, it really is a great place to grow up, 
you know, being an angler. But um, yeah, it was it was always in the family. In fact, my grandparents on my mom's side they owned a little bait and tackle shop in Trenton, New Jersey. My mom lived above it growing up, and you mm. know, packed worms in there and stuff for the family <laughs> business. So um, it's it's always been a part of who I am, you know. And for you as a kid, what was the first kind of fish that you remember going after? Oh, bluegills. You know, it's not a super fun answer. I think it's the answer <laughs> most people give. But um, when I was really little, you know, it was bluegills and everything else was a bonus. So you're bluegill fishing every once in a while, a big bass latch is on. And, um, you know, growing up where I did here, opening day of trout season, it was a very big deal. Cultural deal, family deal. It still is for people in the, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey region. They're stockers, right? They're truck trout. But the anticipation of that first Saturday in April, that was like the big deal when I was little. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, did you kind of take it for your own and say, man, I want to do this somehow, some way for a job? Not at all. Not at all. That actually came much, much later. Um, I always uh, I, I always had two hobbies, really. My whole life was fishing and music. So I always fished. Um, always played in bands, punk bands, metal bands, right? <laughs> so I actually wanted to go into music. I wanted to go into recording technology and then come to find out that when you apply to schools for that, they uh, they kind of insist you know how to play more than chugga-chugga power chords. You have to be a pretty <laughs> proficient musician. So I was like, ah, maybe that's not going to work. But I, I always really enjoyed writing, everything, creative writing, poetry, whatever, all throughout school. I always really enjoyed writing. So I'm like, well, I'm pretty good at that. So I, I switched into college for journalism instead of music. And then about halfway through it, I'm like, what the hell? What do I have to write about? Oh, fishing. I like that, too. So mm. that sort of step into like maybe, maybe long shot, but maybe I could I could make this a job or a career that really didn't sort of dawn on me till sophomore year of college. It was hmm. it was saw for fun, you know, prior to that. And and as a kid going from obviously fishing was in your family, but everybody kind of finds their own progression from, you know, most people start with the bluegills or chasing bass and ponds and lakes. For you, what did that progression look like to where, you know, by the time you're in college, it's not just something you quote unquote used to do as a kid? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think um again, because of the variety that we have around here, it starts with bluegills moves up to catfish. I think I was it was my 10th birthday or 11th when I finally said, hey, somebody needs to get me a fly rod. Now I want to know what that's all about. So I started mm. playing around with that. Um, was really into, into fly in my early teens. And then, you know, you hit that point where you start driving, you get your license, and it's like, well, now I don't need somebody to drop me off. Mm -hmm. And through, through college, the thing I did the most uh, was surf fish. I was a mm. big-time surf fisherman. Um, so it's funny because, like, looking back on it now, when I say it all together, I'm like, oh, man, it's such a stock progression. Bluegills to trout to fly to surf. And then um, when I was 22, I bought my first boat, you know, a uh, smaller boat than, than we grew up with. My family always had, like, a cabin cruiser that we would weekend on. But then I bought a used, beat-up, go-fast boat. Hmm. And before you know it, it's like, ah, I want to go tuna fishing. I want to go do all the things, you know? So... And for you, what was that writing progression like? Because I think there's a lot of people who they would love to be involved in some form of outdoor journalism, but it's kind of intimidating to think about what's the first step and, and how did you really find your way into that to getting all the way to the point where you're writing for Field and Stream, which is, you know, a very trusted source. 
Yeah, no, I I, uh, I was the fishing editor at Field and Stream for a decade, solid decade, the youngest person to ever hold that position on the masthead. Um, and even though, you know, that, that part of my career is, is behind me now, I still don't take that for granted. Like, I still can't believe that I, I got to do that. And I think of, of all the questions I get from people, um, the, the most frequent is from younger people wanting to know, how do you do, how do I do what you've done? And um, it's interesting because I, I started all this when I was in college with a local magazine. So I started 2005, we'll say. And if you look at how the media landscape has changed between 2005 and 2022, which is it's not really that much time if you think about it, we, we are in a completely different world with writing and media here today than when I started. I sort of caught the tail end, the very tail end of when print mattered more than anything. And mm-hmm. you had to get in with a print magazine and there were very limited spaces. There were only so many you know, opportunities to even get your foot in the door there. Um, and now, you know, younger people, kids want advice. I, I don't I don't know how to advise them because I didn't come up in this era where you can make yourself so easily. Point blank, when I when I started in the magazine industry uh, right out of college, I was with Saltwater Sportsman. We hardly cared at all about our website. It was like, whatever. Yeah, there's a mm-hmm. there's a website over there, you know. Um, so it's it's been really strange in that regard, and I'm sort of happy that it worked out that way because. I have different perspectives than people mm-hmm. who are just trying to break into it now. Um, but, you know, I also think that uh, for better or worse, people want everything to happen fast nowadays. That's just sort of the world we live in. And uh, I think it's, and a lot of people don't want to hear that to get to where I am, man, that was like grinding for years. So mm-hmm. you asked about the progression. You know, I started with, with, um, I started covering tournaments, local club bass tournaments. That was like step one. And, you know, covering the local fishing flea market for this regional Jersey magazine. And then time goes by and they say, all right, try a feature. And then I got an internship with a, with a national magazine. I had one byline my first year. They, they took a shot and threw me a bone and, and gave me one byline. Um, and it, it's a progression. You know, you start out writing these really short little things, these, you know, little gear reviews and little tippy things. Um, it, it takes time, but I will say one advantage to coming up in that era when, when print was still king was one of the craziest things that ever happened to me. I, I had just graduated college. I'd been a full-time employee of Saltwater Sportsman for about two months, and um, my editor-in-chief, Dave Benedetto, who wrote On the Run, the Striper book, On the Run, which is phenomenal, he pulls me into his office, and he's like, hey, I got an assignment for you. Go to the Florida Keys. Uh, fish your way from Largo to Key West, can't spend more than 150 bucks a day. <laughs> now, I'd never been to the Florida Keys in my life. And I was, you know, kind of naive. And I was like, okay. And I, I, I caught a bunch of fish. I figured it out. I couldn't hire guides. But in hindsight, talking to those guys later, they were like, oh, we were laughing our asses off because we were like, <laughs> meh, it's a small investment. We'll send the kid. Maybe he gets a great story and, and really rocks it. Or if he totally fails, whatever. Um <laughs> That era is sort of gone. It's harder for yeah. for young people that that do break in to get that kind of mentorship and opportunity. You know, um, it, it it just still blows my mind how how much different outdoor journalism, outdoor media in general, is now compared to just two thousand five. To me, that feels like yesterday. You know, 
Yeah. And I, I think too, you know, you kind of hit something about people wanting to be overnight successes or they want to have everything really instantly. I was a creative writing major, which is uh, mm-hmm. journalism with more uh, doodling and crowns. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, a lot of my classmates, they were, it was just kind of like, you'd have a few people who are like, I want to be a writer and I'll work at bars, I'll work at restaurants, I'll mm-hmm. eat ramen noodles. I just want to do what I love. And then you have people who are like, yeah, I'd be a writer if I got paid 50,000 out the gate with no experience. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, are there some people in, in fishing media now self-made who've struck it big? Sure, there are. Is that the reality of this? You don't ever go into this looking to make a ton of money, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, man, it's 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 hard to describe to somebody now when when there is that chance or perceived chance of instant success of like, hey, you got to grind this out for a bunch of years, man. And and people always want to know how I got into this. And the, the truth is, while I certainly I, I worked my ass off to prove myself, right. In, in, in some ways, you know, I grew up playing music, and when you're in a band, you're always looking for your shot, right? It's not, it wasn't that much different for me. It was meeting the right people at exactly the, you know, the right time to get that one step in the door, and then you grind it and grind it and grind it, and then somebody says, all right, good timing. I'm going to give you another shot, you know? I mean, just to become the fishing editor at Field & Stream, when I started there, um, John Merwin, who was a legend, was still the, the fishing editor at the time, right? And... Um, I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe when I'm 50 years old or something, you know, who mm-hmm. who knows. He retired. He got tired of doing it, and I mm-hmm. just by then had done enough work and and proved myself and 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 grounded out enough and just been, you know, vocal enough about wanting that that I was there at the right time to step into that. So, it really it's it's not that much different than 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 making it in anything. It takes a ton of hard work, but it also just takes the right, you know, meeting the right people and, mm-hmm. and, and, and being there at the right time, you know? Yeah. And, and recognizing that opportunity, which I've already kind of picked up on that in general and tried to live that out in my life, which is, you know, people, they always want to say, Oh, that person got lucky. Okay. Well, yeah. maybe, but how many people have an opportunity right in front of their face and they're too scared or they're too naive to the opportunity, or they're not willing to make the sacrifice to get the foot in the door. And I think that's a cool part about your story. I'm curious too, like one of the things they talk about in writing, and this is, I mean, really this is true for a lot of different things outside of even writing, but there's a there's a phrase in writing called finding your own voice mm-hmm. or, or being comfortable in your own skin. And I'd love to hear for you too, as somebody who, you know, you're a a New Jersey kid, you love fishing, you get into the outdoor world. What did it look like for you to kind of find your own voice? Cause, cause really you kind of have a distinct, to me, you have a distinct way of, you know, podcasting and your shows kind of has its own personality. I'd love to hear about for you what that process looked like. And if there were times where maybe you, you really struggled to kind of find an identity. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I had a really deep answer to that. I think on the surface, um, with a lot of things I've done, I've, I've always sort of just embraced who I am and where I'm from right out of the gate. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jersey people are no bullshit kind of people. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> it just is what it is. And, um, you know, there's there's plenty of people in this industry and in many others that, um, you know, I'm sure you've met people who have camera time and who have FaceTime out there with the public. And they're one way off camera. Often they're cooler. And then there's a whole media persona, 
you know, put on in their writing, um, you know, when they're in front of a camera. I, I always hated that. And I always tried really hard um, to just be who I was. But in terms of finding that voice, I, I wish I could tell you there was a process. I think it's it's something that just happens over time. It's a very hard thing to teach. Like you can you could I, I, I can't tell you how many stories I've read from people who just want to critique. Hey, man, will you read this piece I put? Of course, you know, and I'm, I'm always happy to do that. And a lot of times I'm like, is there, is, you have something to say here. I just don't know who's saying it. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's a it's a very hard thing to teach. Um, and I, I don't think it's it's was easy for that voice to come out, you know, in the early days when I'm writing more sort of how-to tips, gear reviews, things like that. There's, there's sort of a very stock formula to that kind of stuff. But I think that voice really came out once I got the fishing editor uh, role at Field & Stream because then it's like, hey, man, that fishing column every month in that magazine, that is yours. Like you are mm-hmm. the fishing editor. You are the face of Field and Stream Fishing. And I looked at that as the opportunity to to finally say, like, I don't I don't need to to fight to get here anymore. I'm here. I'm picked. I'm the guy. You know, uh, the, uh, the people I work with are confident that I can be the fishing editor. So now I can let loose. And between that and the Hookshots video series and podcast that I that I did for Field and Stream, um, it really, you know, took getting to those things to really kind of say, oh, screw it. I'm going all in. Like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, um, tight and sort of, you know, too teachy, too how-to. There's plenty of that out there. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to kind of work in what I think and how I talk and, you know, in everything that I do. So that I think any writer would tell you, you don't find your voice overnight. You just don't. You know, and mm-hmm. some people never find it. That's just the reality of it. You know, some people who strive to write for years, write and write and write, but you know, do they really have a recognizable voice? They don't. That's that's it's a hard thing to achieve. You know, so that's a huge compliment from from you to hear that. You know, you think I have that because after all these years, I'm like, oh, do I? Okay, cool. You know, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's like, cool to hear. Who that. am I, <laughs> <laughs> dude? Some some days I am. I you're don't staring even know at anymore. A, yeah, you're staring at a <laughs> blank page, and you're like, I have something to say. I just don't know who's saying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, one of the things that I think is really cool too that. I don't know. I mean, when I when I started the podcast, my only desire was really just to meet cool people and and get the experiences and learn. That really was was all it was to me. And I try to fight to keep that at the forefront. I didn't care if anybody noticed. I didn't care if I made any money or or got free stuff or anything like that. I really just wanted to grow. I'm curious, like in your career as a kid who grew up in Jersey, where obviously you guys have a lot of fishing, but everybody that grows up, unless you have some sort of special circumstance where you have parents or family members who are just really dedicated to getting you different experiences, or you got a bunch of money, you know, we're all limited by our geography to some extent, like Mm -hmm. a kid growing up in Florida, you know, people are like, Oh, have you ever done this type of trout fishing or, or ice fished or whatever? It's like, no, I saw, I didn't, I didn't see snow until I was a teenager, you know, right. and the ice right. fish, you know, so we're all limited, but then you get out and you have these different experiences and you grow. I'm curious for you, how your writing career and how your, your media career, cause obviously you have a podcast and, and have done television, how that has helped you evolve as an angler from where you started. Oh, I mean, that's, that's actually, that's, that's an easier one because another thing I've, I've always really tried to, to do, um, it almost like pains me to say this because it's not who I am, but just to explain it, right? 
there are certain kinds of fishing that I feel like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Like you could call me an expert on this, this, and this, right? But I also recognize that I will never be an expert on everything. And I never looked at my job at Meat Eater or Field and Stream to be like sort of the the the, the resident no expert that knows it all. Like this guy's <laughs> like the fishing god. And I still have people reach out like, oh man. What's it like to be a professional fisherman? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm not a professional fisherman. I'm a, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. So that progression, I mean, that's that's the fun stuff, right? To me, it's more about people than fish. It always has been. The the, the fun of, of, of traveling somewhere, like, yeah, you're going to catch some cool stuff, and, and that's awesome. But I always say, you know, when you go on a trip with your buddies, what, what stories are you telling three years later? It's often mm-hmm. not the fish. It's what happened in the motel room or who fell over and cracked their head or whatever. <laughs> so the the appeal of, of having a career in this and getting to travel, um, the fish were cool. Love the fish. But, man, the amount of awesome people that I have met, and I looked at, at my job um, as more of, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to meet you, and you're going to teach me something, and I'm going to take that, and I'm going to teach it to a bunch of other people but I'm going to tell them that you taught me. You know what I mean? I, I've never been one to sort of learn something and be like, let me tell you how to use a, a you know, how to tie a deceiver better. I'll write mm. that story, but I'm going to say, I was hanging out here. This dude showed me this. I always um, tried to, the analogy would be like, I might have the louder megaphone, but I'm always trying to give it to you for 15 minutes. I did that with mm-hmm. hook shots. I do that now with B-side fishing with that series. Um, we lean heavily into having captains and personalities in bent. Um, you know, that's that's sort of the fun of it uh, because I'm, I'm very into the communal aspect of fishing. I think that's mm-hmm. been sort of another overriding theme to a lot of things I've done um, that, you know, it's the community aspect that's a, a really good time. Like we all mm-hmm. like to catch the fish, but the hangs sometimes are more fun than the catching the fish, you know. As, as you think about that, are there any trips or, or stories that really stand out to you? Like I'd love to hear more about your $150 budget keys (laughs) trip where it sounded like you were alluding to a hotel trip with some cracked heads and and things like that. (laughs) Uh, There's been a few of them too. There was only one time I actually had to wedge the chair under the doorknob because I was so scared. That was in, that was in Phoenix, but that's not the best story. The key, the keys deal, um, you know, it was one of those deals where as soon as I was finished, I was like, man, I'd love to do that for another week because I learned so much in that time. And, um, you know, I I got it done. Dude, my mom lost like 15 pounds when I was on that trip because I was fresh out of college, (laughs) like down there with a flip phone in a Ziploc bag, you know, uh, and a rental car jam full of uh, a million different kinds of rods. But, um, no, it was a cool experience. And I remember, you know, you have to catch a tarpon, right? Like you have to Mm -hmm. catch a tarpon. You can't go to the Keys and not catch a tarpon. And, um, you know, Richard Stanzik, I'm sure you know who Richard Stanzik mm-hmm. is from Bud and Mary's, you know, he, he, uh, he knew I was coming. My editor, I think reached out to him and said, hey, his kid's coming down, talk to him. So I mm-hmm. went to Bud and Mary's and you know, he gave me a hat and he gave me a, a soda and he gave me a bucket of crabs. <laughs> and he's like, go down to this bridge. I think it was tea table. Maybe he's like, go down there and all the tarpon you want. And I went down there and. Man, I fished all night long, never got a touch. And I'm just thinking, like, I can't leave here without sticking a tarpon. So I was staying, oh, man, Sea and Pines Motel. It was bad, man. Like, I literally had those off wipes, those bug wipes, and I would line them around the bed at night because there was just so many bugs crawling in this room. (laughs) 
and there was water right out back, and I was out there catching barracudas, and, and this kid, Cuban kid, I think his uncle was staying there, and he was dropping his uncle off, and we just started talking fishing. And I told him what I was down there doing. He's like, hey, man, you meet me under the bridge tonight, 1030, I'll catch you tarpon. And I'm like, okay. And then I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I don't know this guy. I'm just going to go meet this dude that I've never <laughs> met under the bridge at 1030. And I think I, I, I think I called my mom that night. I'm like, yeah, I gotta, I'm meeting this guy. She's like, what? What? The guy's name was George. That's all I remember. But we just we went down <laughs> under uh, Vaca Cut Bridge. And, I mean, we just hammered tarpon all night. And big jacks and, like, left left kind of buddies, you know? So mm-hmm. that was the most memorable part of that trip. But it, it was cool because people really did try your best, to, you know, try their best to help you along the way. Mm-hmm. But early in my career, that was sort of my, my shtick. I was the budget guy. So I did that for Saltwater Sportsman. And then Field and Stream was a sister publication, even though I didn't work there. Their editor at the time was like, do the same thing in Montana. You and a buddy, 150 bucks a day. And we fished from West Yellowstone all the way up to Kalispell on the same budget. That went over well. They're like, do Alaska. Can't spend more than $3,000. That we did in an RV that was barely an RV. I think it was just like a van with a cot in the back. That was semi-miserable, but we caught fish the whole way. So that was, early on, I was the budget guy. You're That's the budget guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the Jersey guy. Let's yeah. give him the, yeah. the low budget. Give him the budget. van a couple bucks, yeah, <laughs> ramen noodles, and let him go to Alaska. So You know, uh, I, but there's something to me really, um, I, you and I were talking earlier, and I was talking about one of the things I enjoyed about Dad's Boat is it, it captures a spirit not to, mm-hmm. I don't want to be too cheesy here, but it does capture a spirit that I think gets missed because we live in a world where w- when you go on social media, you're seeing the $80,000 boats, you're seeing the coolest lodges, the highest end gear. And I think what, what can end up happening for some people is that it, it just causes them to sit around and, and fantasize about other people's fishing experiences rather than just saying, you know what, if you got a hundred bucks, go give it a shot. You know, you don't have to have a, you don't have to, you know, have a guide every single day. You you can do self-guided. You don't have to stay in the nicest place. You can stay in your car. You can do whatever. And I think that that spirit, I think a lot of people appreciate. That's one of the things that was fun about Dad's Boat was just, hey, you know, let's get back to the basics here. You know, here's a really crappy old boat and it's fishing still fun because it's fishing. Oh, completely, man. I mean, I've, I've never owned a new boat in my life, right? I've never had a new boat. Uh, but I, I think I can even expand that that sort of mentality even further. I, I've always preached um, for, for many years to embrace your home fishing, no matter what that is, right? Like, be excited about what you have close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think once you you lose the excitement about what's in your backyard and you only want to travel or you're only fantasizing about getting out of here. Um, you know, that was sort of another thing that I, I, I kind of wanted to buck with, with field and stream was if you look at the legacy of the fishing editors, these are guys who travel the world, like these great names, Merwin and McLean and all these guys. Um, I was the fishing editor that like, would still go fish the irrigation pond, behind the movie theater (laughs) i still do i was there a few days ago right after christmas because there's giant ass pickerel in there and i don't Mm -hmm. care you know and like so that that's always been sort of my deal if i get to travel i want to you know take you with me and and show you what's there but i'm very about the hometown scene i'm Mm -hmm. you know i'm about the local guy the hometown scene appreciating what you have in your own backyard not always thinking well 
and everything would be so much better if I could get to Key West. Key West is awesome, man, but like, don't be unexcited about the creek down the street. Maybe it's, mm-hmm. a, you know, got nothing but little smallmouths in it. So what? That's yours. That's your home water. Um, and I think DOS Boat captures that really, really well, too. It just sort of blows that up. Not only are we, are we sticking to these home waters, it's like you certainly don't need the latest and the greatest boat to, to tackle them, you know? Yeah, and, and you mentioned pickerel, which gets me a pretty good transition here to something that I want to talk about where, you know, outside of being the budget guy, and maybe this is related, you're also kind of, you've written and recorded podcasts and TV shows about overlooked fish, you know, mm-hmm. or, or underrated fish. And I remember like a, a hook shot episode <clears throat> where you just focused on chain pickerel, you mm-hmm. know. And I'd love just to hear a little bit about where that love for the uh, underrated, is that a Jersey thing? Is you feel like Jersey's no. underrated, so you want to... <laughs> no, no, I mean, s- slightly, right? It, it is, but that's fine. We don't need any more people here, right? Um, uh, but I, to a degree, I think that stems from being from Jersey. The first season of B-Side Fishing for, for Meat Eater, you know, we filmed that in the height of COVID. Like right when the hammer dropped, nobody was flying anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to kick off a new show about underrated places and fisheries. I'm like, well, perfect. I don't really need to go too far because this is, you know, this is this is <laughs> this is Jersey. You're in the Mecca. <laughs> um, I also just want to step back for one second and say I was the but they give me more money to do stuff now. I'm not the budget mm. guy anymore. That was like 22 <laughs> year old me was like the budget dude. But anyway. Um, it, it all ties back to, again, uh, being excited about and proud of your home waters. Why do I love mm-hmm. pickerel so much? Because I don't have any musky or pike in my backyard, right? So, you know, growing up, you have all these little ponds around here in central Jersey. They're loaded with the – they're still in Esox, right? The hit's still awesome. They still wake a bait and crush a bait. They do it a lot more readily to me. I don't see what's not to love about that fish. Same thing with bowfin. I'm sure you are also know I'm very into snakehead. So it's not like I go out of my way to, oh, you know, I just fish for the weird stuff nobody else wants to catch. No, man, I love smallmouth and tuna and stripers and all that stuff too. But um, I, I, I do sort of appreciate these fish that maybe by and large get sort of pushed to the side, pickerel being one of them. But I'm not coming out there and saying, well, you're dumb if you don't fish for pickerel. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, if you have those, don't overlook them. I That's all I have, right? there. Like I said, there's just not great pike water in my backyard. You know, muskie's a chore. There's a handful of places. But there were pickerel all over. So that's just what I grew up fishing. And it's funny, when I when I did that Hook Shots episode, that was all very close to home. That whole thing was filmed in my backyard. I think of all the episodes I've done, I think I got more response to that pickerel episode than like peacock bass in the Amazon, um, mm-hmm. which tells me that people appreciate, you know, that that y- you devote so much time and effort into not, you know, it's not the Amazon. It's I, I can do this. You know, I, I want I want to do things that are achievable for the average guy. You know, you can't always be jet set everywhere. That's not attainable to the average guy. But Maybe flip one switch and go, oh, maybe I should go try some pickerel. I haven't really messed with them. You know, they're mm-hmm. there. I'm always bass fishing. Maybe I should go down there in the winter when the pickerel are active. If it flips a couple switches, I'm happy, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I was kind of curious because when you're traveling around and you're experiencing all these different fisheries and you're you're kind of getting out of your own zone and, and going for fish that now you're in a new place 
but you're still going for that B-list fish, for lack of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. When you think back on those experiences, was there any that really, really surprised you that you felt like maybe is the king of the B-list fish? Oh, man. The king of the B-list fish. Wow. See, I hate to always bring it back to snakeheads, but I, I kind of have to, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I remember when that whole panic started happening out here on the East Coast between Florida and here, you know, the snakeheads are taking over. I heard about it. I wrote about it a little bit in some blog posts, but um, it seemed like something very distant and, and very sort of like, yeah, I'll get to that at some point. And then I remember I, I pulled the trigger uh, and went down to D.C. to chase them on video for a, for a Hookshots episode, and we completely skunked. We, we hit a cold front and mm. uh, didn't even see one, didn't even turn one. Mm. So I walked away from that going like, man, eh, still who cares? Like, all right, I came down, I tried for your stupid things, whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, can't be impressed by what, what we didn't catch. <laughs> and then a couple years went by, and I got an offer to go do it in Florida instead, and I was like, all right, I kind of got a score to settle there. And that's when it finally meshed, like when we hit it right and, uh, you know, fished around Miami. And the first one that came off a bank and crushed that frog, I was like, damn, that was cool. And <laughs> that one trip was enough motivation to come home and start devoting some time to poking around. Remember, this is a few years ago where, like, there were not as many around here as there are now. Like, it was still a serious hunt to, to find one or two of these things. And I just went all in on that fish. I thought the the hunt was cool, you know, trying to figure out where the right water is. Could there be one there? Do I come at a different tide? Maybe there's one there, maybe there's not. And then it was almost like like um, finally getting a muskie eat when, when one finally moved. And uh, so it's sort of a roundabout way of getting to what I, I think the most underrated was. I still will preach that, especially because they're also delicious. And there's still so many people that hate them. I'm like, man, you are missing out on a lot of fun. And they are honestly one of my favorite freshwater fish to eat. All right. So two things then. Give me the cliff note version of how to become a snakehead fisherman. And then give me the best recipe on how to impress your friends. <laughs> Once after 10 years of searching, you you find one. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So um, the first part is fairly easy, right? Three things, in my opinion. There's going to be snakehead dudes listening to this and go, oh, come on. But I'm telling you right now. Zoom fluke, topwater frog, one that walks, and one that pops. Heavy bait caster, at least 40-pound braid. That's it. In most scenarios, one of those three things is going to get it done, right? Because you got mm-hmm. you got to wrench these fish out of, out of heavy muck. And then beyond that, I mean you can easily go online and figure out the range between Pennsylvania and Virginia. Um, In most river systems, you're looking for the places where you don't think necessarily any of the other game fish you like to chase would be. So if there's that mucky, dead, stagnant, weedy little eddy spinning up there in the summertime, it's all hot and has no flow and no oxygen. That's probably where the snakehead's (laughs) going to be, you know? So, and that's sort of part of the fun. you know, that we have them here on the Delaware River where I live. You're not going to go out in the middle of the river and catch one, maybe incidentally, but that's not where they live. So the fun is mm. like, where is the little micro ecosystem within this big picture where one might be? Mm. Um, and then um, as far as cooking them, man, just fry the thing, 
right? Like I'll, I'll, <laughs> I, I can't take credit for this recipe, but I saw it and I've tried it. Um, instead of like egg washing it, right? Just dunk it in, uh, in hot sauce, like a, um, like a sriracha or a gochujang mm-hmm. or whatever it is, and use that to make the panko stick. And I like it in tacos, like in small chunks, like either you just make nuggets and dip it in something or, uh, make it in tacos. I, uh, it's like beating a dead horse. I've said this in so many places. I think it's more delicious than walleye. And walleye mm. is pretty damn good freshwater fish, you know? Yeah. And I, I've never had one. So I, I'm definitely going to make that a, a New Year's resolution. So yeah. if someone's, if someone's one of listening to this and, uh, and, and wants to uh, give me the, the rundown, I'd be happy to. I think that'd be really cool. And it, it's tough with invasive species because I remember I was interviewing Flip Pallet two years ago and he was talking about when he was a kid. And he was down in South Florida. He remembered people talking about it. It was almost like whispers. It was like this myth of, of hogs. And, right, right. And then he was like, but from his perspective, he was like, cool, another thing to hunt. Now, yeah. I don't, I don't want to like over, I, I have not looked into the science of it. I don't know about the habitat and how they're effective native species. I, all of the disclaimers, but it's still cool when you have something new to target, you know? Uh, well, Flip, I mean, he, he hit the nail on the head. I, I, I would completely agree. Um, if you, first of all, uh, you know, with the hogs and with the snakeheads, they're, they're not going away. There's nothing we can do to make them go away. So we can stop that. Like, they're not, nothing's going to happen. They're not going to go away. They're here. So I, I always looked at it like you spent your whole life in this area with largemouth, smallmouth, some stock trout, some bluegills, some pickerel, some catfish. That's what you've had in the backyard your entire life. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, for better or worse, here is this brand new thing that lives in different places, that feeds differently than all that other stuff, that hunts differently than all that other stuff. Like, what is not fun about that? Like, mm-hmm. to, to me, it was like, oh, man. Like, I was like, I'm alive again. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was <laughs> like, it, it was just so different that um, I found that really appealing. So it just... It, you know, you, you have people who live where they live and they're like, ah, well, nothing to do with those things. It's like, why, man? Like, it's 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 a completely different challenge. I, I, mm-hmm. I thought it was great. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to kind of learn a little bit more about that. I haven't done as much freshwater fishing as an adult as I did as a kid growing up just because once I got into the salt, I really fell in love with it. And now I'm, I'm actually, you know, kind of, I have a desire growing to have more diversity in my fishing. I think because what I've learned even since starting this podcast is the more places I go and the more fish I chase and the more people I meet, honestly, the more fun I have. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm a better all around angler. You know, you talked about, um, you know, you, you try, you're not a specialist in any particular one thing. I, I'm the same. I mean, there's guys who, some of the guys in my own backyard, they literally have dedicated their lives to tarpon fishing and they're out there every day that they can do it. And they're, mm-hmm. they obsess over it and they focus on it. And I really respect that. They're a specialist. And then there's some people who are more of a generalist who are like, you know, that's really cool, but I'm going to go get these experiences and meet these people. And you can't, you know, I think it's annoying when somebody who is a generalist and, and runs around all over the place, having all these experiences, tries to like carry the same weight as someone who's made that sacrifice, you know, to be out there, you yeah. know, 200 days doing one particular thing over and over and over again, yep. you know? Yep. And I, I have incredible respect for the guys that, that do that too. My, my take is like, life's too short to fish for one thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you just, and uh, I, 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 you know, I still get a bunch of crap. I've, I've still never caught a muskie on the fly. It's like, 
it was like my bane for years. I tried. I've gone on you know a bunch of trips. I've tried to film it, and people still give me a hard time. They're like, "How come you don't have your muskie on the fly yet?" And my answer is always, "Well, if I wanted it that badly, to where anytime I had free time to go fish, all I did was go throw muskies, you know, go throw flies on musky water, I would have it by now. But to I." I can't bring myself to do that like in June or whenever because there's so many other things going on that it's very hard to just like stay focused on that one thing. You know, mm-hmm. now what I do agree with is knowing, you know, say three or four different bodies of water like the back of your hand rather than be one of these guys that hop skips jumps all over the place and knows a tiny little bit about a whole bunch of different places. I do agree with devoting yourself to to bodies of water and knowing them inside and out but um not species that's never been me people are always like what's your favorite thing to fish for i'm like i don't know dude whatever i'm fishing for right now and if it's trout you know then it's trout right now if i'm Mm -hmm. tuna fishing tomorrow it's tuna you know i'm curious too like one of the things that has been helpful to me is you know forcing myself to somehow intelligently record so not just like take a photo but like Mm -hmm. either journal down or write down somehow record a podcast somehow try to kind of record my experiences i i find that i learn more and retain more from that i'm curious if you would give a a little bit of a a little bit of a, a plug for why should somebody consider keeping a journal or writing even if it's just for themselves even if they keep the stories to pass down to their great grandkids or used as Kindle in a fire? You know, you should consider it because the best anglers in the world that I know, especially guys similar to the tarpon guys you're talking about, like surf guys up here, striper guys, they all keep journals. The best captains keep some kind of notes, and it is incredible how if you can just devote yourself to it for a couple years, how patterns emerge and it becomes so useful. Every great angler will tell you to do that. I am telling you to do that. Yet I've had 5 million false starts, and I personally cannot do it. I've never Mm. been able to get it together. I've tried. I've always wanted to. I know how much better of an angler it makes you. So I I feel hypocritical because I also also understand, you know, how devoted you have to be um, to do that. But if you're the kind of person that that can – and the thing is – it can't be the good stuff, right? If you're going to do it, man, you document everything. You sit there and you put down the same, you know, amount of notes and craft into a garbage day where you saw nothing and caught nothing because that will end up mattering more. It, it, it takes dedication, um, and I've just never been able to get my act together mm-hmm. on it. But you should. Everybody listening, you should because it's, it's you know, it's worth its weight in gold just having two years of a really dedicated journal, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's that I've seen that myself and, and the guys who don't have journals who are still really great captains or anglers that I've met have phenomenal, phenomenal memories. And they're like, yeah. oh yeah, when it's blowing three days in a row and this, and you've had one inch of rain, you know, four summers ago, this, ha-, you know, and it's like, okay, well you have a journal in your head, but most of us, you know, it's that old saying that the, 
what is it? The lightest pen is better than the strongest memory. Is yeah. that right? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it carries a sentiment, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and I don't, I don't really even know. I, I made that sound daunting because I have a couple buddies that keep like super, super detailed journals, but I mean, really, if you break it down, you know, where, weather, wind, tide, water temperature, you can you can narrow it down to a few things. I think sadly there's apps that do that now, right? You can just plug all that in. But I mean, even that, the the patterns I can't tell you how many captains I've been out with and you're just, you know, shooting the breeze and it's like, where are we going? Here, why? I'm like, well, I look at my notes, I had exactly the same conditions two years ago in the same tide and most of the time something happens or it works mm-hmm. out. It's it's incredible, you know. And and I've been with a lot of guys too who and, and I've started to see this develop in myself and I'm very early on in this whole thing, but where they run somewhere and I was in Tampa Bay with a captain, Brian Jill, incredible captain. And we stopped at three spots mm-hmm. and never put a fly in the water. Right. We stopped. He looked, he said, Nope, not right. Yep. Move to the next one. Nope, not right. And eventually I think, you know, you t- yeah, there's patterns of like, yeah, these fish are going to do this in these circumstances, but there's also this, this other factor of like, you begin to just develop a feel that doesn't happen overnight. You can tell that that's just, you know, they use the phrase, that's a fishy person, but you know, that's somebody who's, nope, this water's not right. This depth's not right. This clarity's not right or whatever. There's not the right type of grass, you yep. know? And, um, I think that's hands down, definitely a characteristic. If, if you're good with it, I'd love to go to rapid fire questions. Cause I have a pretty long list here. Yeah, man, of, shoot. Uh, so one of the things that we talked about was you were talking about, you don't, you don't, in the outdoor media world, you don't like fluff, but at the same time, <laughs> in my mind, at least you're known somewhat for the banter, you know, like right. you're, you're, you can, you can banter. What's the difference to you between fluff and banter? You talking about in terms of podcasting? Yeah. Podcasting. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, life in general, I guess is just a little too, probably too big of a topic to tackle. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, I so yeah so we we talked about that a little bit before this. I wasn't really referring to to podcasting so much because I I wouldn't consider banter fluff. Good banter is good banter. I mean that's what makes a good podcast, right? Mm. Dudes have to be able to talk to make it a good podcast. But we were talking a little bit as I recall about video and mm-hmm. um I think coming from a writing background, seeing that that's where I started and and spent so many years feature writing. Um, I believe in the power of a good story. Now, there's a lot of really talented shooters out there today, you know, making some really stunningly beautiful video. I just think that a lot of it lacks that whole story thing, and mm-hmm. it bothers me. You know, um, when I started putting hook shots together, and granted, dude, I'm doing this with nothing, with a handy cam iMovie, no experience whatsoever. You're the low budget guy. I'm the low budget. Yeah, exactly. I'm the budget guy, right? <laughs> so I started doing this with no video experience at all, and I still don't have much compared to the pros out there doing this. But I'm like, well, how do I approach this? Well, it's write a story with a video. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Something happens. Something engages you. And I don't think it's a, it's not a hard formula, but um. I, I, you know, I almost think in some senses we're, we're getting away from that more and more. I think people are coming back to really embracing a story versus just fish porn and, and pretty images. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, 
have sometimes I seem to have a sense that like attention spans are are getting a little longer again, which is which is good. Um, but yeah, when when you say fluff, that's that's what I mean. I mean, you know, I I can't tell you how much fishing video I watched. I'm just like, man, this is gorgeous. But I don't know anything. I don't know where mm-hmm. you are. I don't know why you're there. I don't know who you are. I don't know why you've picked that fly. I. I guess I, I need a story to be engaged yeah. like story matters first. And I truly believe that if you're a very good storyteller, you can engage people with a flip phone or, you know, a red dragon. You got to be mm-hmm. a good storyteller, you know? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I agree completely. The the I watched a video last year. It wasn't released last year. And uh, it's actually of a, someone who's become a friend of mine. I got the chance to fish with this year and, and had an awesome trip. Dan Diaz. And um, Orvis did a video about him and his grandfather and his grandfather who immigrated in from Cuba and he he fought against uh, the government there. And it was this unbelievably well done story about what fishing meant to his family Mm -hmm. and his grandpa and to Mm -hmm. him. And it had good shots in it, but that story really, really, really stuck with me. I mean, it's, it's still something I think about a lot, like, and in some ways you can make stuff that's really aesthetically pleasing, but it's like junk food, you know, they, it doesn't fill you up. Sure. Sure. It's, it's a momentary hit, you know? Yeah, man. And, and there's a, there's a lot of great stuff out there. The, the one that always sticks with me, um, I don't ever think it got the credit it deserved, but if you, if you get a chance, maybe you've heard of it. You ever hear of Gotham fish tales? Mm -mm. Haven't not yet. Gotham fish tales. I mean, man, that must've been made. Oh, very early 2000s um and all it is is a documentary about fishing both recreational and commercial around new york harbor Hmm. and there's no narrator there's nobody telling the story but there's much less fishing and much more just letting all the people that this filmmaker meets talk and explain themselves and why they do what they do and it is one of the best fishing documentaries I've ever seen. Mm. I don't ever get tired of watching it. It was terrific. And it's very low budget. Even for the mm. time, it was very low budget, you know. Um, but it's great. Like, you get, you get stuck to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I cannot tell you how many people, the two things that get brought up again and again and again in conversations and on this podcast are Walker's K with Flip Palette. Mm-hmm. And um, a river runs through it. Sure, sure. And I actually just rewatched a river runs through it because it gets brought up so much. And I was like, man, I haven't seen that movie in like ten years. I haven't seen it. Yeah, me either. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I'm gonna rewatch it. And the you know the cinema of it, it, it was good for the time. But the story is what's really good about it, right? And you you watch these old Walker K videos, and Flip is an incredible narrator. Like, yes. he's great oh, voiceovers. Legendary. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, he's, he's a storyteller, you know? I think I think you're right. I, I like to think that attention spans are getting longer, or at least we've got to the point where a lot of people are already following 4,000 incredible photographers, right? and they just, no offense to photography, because I love great photography, but yeah. people want storytelling, too, and, um, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I, I don't agree with that. Right. See, I agree. With, I agree. I agree with it more with a single frame. And again, no offense to anybody, because like I said I am no in no way, shape or form, an expert videographer, photographer. None of that. But, um, you know, I, 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 I feel that 
you can have this beautiful footage, but man, if you're going to do moving pictures, there needs to be a story there. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think early on when it was all so new and there were so many people jumping into that, it was one thing. But um, I, I really do feel like maybe we're, we're getting away from that a little bit. People are sort of coming around, you know. Mm. My next rapid fire question, I'm, I'm going to be known as the worst rapid fire guy by the time I'm done. You're, why, you're the... why am I taking too long to answer? <laughs> no, I've never I've never done a rapid fire correctly, but it's not it's not you. <laughs> we do it's one on bet, too. And half the time it's like. Answer as fast as you can, and it's like five minutes later. Okay, next yeah. question. It's just, whatever. Just roll with it. Yeah, whatever. It, it basically is like I've. It's the point in the podcast where I've given up trying to create any type of cohesive <laughs> storyline, and you know. Um, but no, my next one is so okay. You you you've spent a lot of time trying to write stories, but also educate anglers. I'm curious, what traps have you seen anglers fall into that you feel like are kind of like if you were going to put those over the top warning signs, like warning, don't do this, don't fall into this trap. What are some of those? Man, I think the biggest one, um, which is probably the least popular, but uh, you know, I'm sticking to my guns is um, don't ever put yourself in, in one silo of how you fish. I think it's a disservice to yourself to say I'm a fly guy and nothing else. I think it's a disservice to say I'm a spin guy and I don't want nothing to do with any of that fly junk. Um, I think the more ways you know how to fish from bait to lures to flies, whatever, it all feeds off each other. All those things make you better at the other one, which is a Mm -hmm. a lame way to put that, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, Always be willing to try new things and don't ever get to a point where you're not willing to try new things because I am one thing and this is how I fish. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's, that's not the way to become the, the best at anything, truthfully. Mm-hmm. So I know that you're a connoisseur of fish tattoos. Mm-hmm. What is the best fish tattoo that you've seen so far? Man, the best fish tattoo that I've seen so far. <sighs> oh, you're killing me. You're killing me with the rapid fire. I've seen so many of them. The answer is none of mine. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, hmm. Oh, man. I feel like I... You're stumping me again, man. I like I know I'm in my head I'm trying to play through like I know there's been some jaws tattoos I've seen that were just showstoppers. Um I've seen so many cool stripers and and I don't have one that's just jumping. I don't have one that's popping. What's wh- give some advice then based off of, you know, you've you've been so deep into the underground fish tattoo scene. What advice do you have to somebody thinking I'm going to get a fish tattoo? Do you have any? Have you learned anything? Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I wouldn't really say I'm so deep into that. I, I have a couple. I enjoy them. Um, I, you know, I have a soft spot for a lot of the great tattoo artists that that's their specialty. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's guys out there who are great. And it's so funny. We were talking about this on Bent not long ago. In hindsight, while I wouldn't say I regret any of my fish tats, it's like, man, I wish I was in a place now to collect them and, and have one from Drew Wilson, you know what I mean? And have one from this guy. And mm-hmm. 
you know, but I th- I think my advice would be, um, I mean, there's so many different reasons to get a tattoo. I, I I will I will tell you, my first fish tattoo was a great white shark, right? And it's not a great tattoo. Certainly never called a great white because that would be illegal. But um, I got it when I was 18, and my dad prompted me. For, I wanted to get a, a guitar or something. He's like, don't do that. You've always loved sharks, right? You've been about sharks since you were a little kid. Um, and that's still a cool tattoo, like in a dad way. Like, it's still cool, and he, but he was right. So the point of that is, um, you know, I guess some people get a tattoo when they catch their biggest whatever. They get their 50-pound striper, so they put that on there. I would go for the fish that that means the most to you, even if that's mm-hmm. maybe not the one that you catch most often. You know, maybe it's the one that started it all for you. Um, like I love seeing a good bluegill, good crappie. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But you you know, there just seems like there's so much more behind that than you know, a, sort of another brown trout jumping for a stonefly midair. You know, it just yeah. has that connection. You know. So I don't really know if that was advice or not, but that's what I got. No, I think that I think that's good. I just got a I have a half sleeve, and I don't know if I'll ever actually finish it because you you hit these you hit these points in life where you're like if if somebody that I really liked as a tattoo artist like offered to do it for free, I'd probably mm-hmm. finish my sleeve. But I'm right. just like to the point in life where like when I have a couple hundred bucks discretionary, I'm just I'm not going. I, I'm, not, I'm just past it. But the most recent tattoo, I I got two last year. I got two uh, white tip fins because I have two daughters and my oldest daughter, when she, we adopted her and when we, we were fostering her and she like naturally gravitated to sharks. She had a shark themed room. She was like, and it wasn't like me feeding. It wasn't like me feeding it to her. Like she just really like, you know, kids like dinosaurs, princesses, sharks. Like, I mean, it's, 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 it's in the top 10 kid things and she just loved them so much i was like you know what like somebody actually giving me a gift card <laughs> a tattoo <laughs> gift card <laughs> i'm gonna put on my gift guide next year but uh and i was just like what am i i'm, I'm gonna get two shark fins so i like worked that into my sleeve it's pretty fun i love it it's it's funny man i have a just like a very simple j hook uh on my forearm and it costs 75 bucks and my grandma that year for Christmas had given me exactly 75 bucks. So after I got the tattoo, she's like, what did you get with the money Graham gave you? I'm like, I got this tattoo. She's like, oh, my God. But I I, I always wanted one, right? And it, it's just like straight out of the catalog, very VMC catalog. I had no love for VMC hooks. It was just like the cool looking hook. And I... It's it's more recognized than any other tattoo I have. It's ended up in in ads for Sims and like all these different places because every <laughs> photographer you hang out with, everybody's like, oh, let me get a picture of that. And you shake somebody's hand. And I, I didn't even give it that much forethought. But so many people are like, man, that's so defining. I'm like, I guess I had mm. 75 bucks and like had a couple beers in me and kind of wanted that. <laughs> but it's funny, like the simplest thing has been like the most recognizable, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I I think that I think that's you know, I think that's definitely the right reason to permanently put something on your body. Is it yeah. you know, it has a it has some it has a it has a meaning to you. It has it brings you back to a place, and um, I totally agree with that, man. My my last question is, and I've asked this to a lot of people, but if you could go back to yourself when you were first starting your writing career, fresh out of college, and you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Wow, man, that's a great, great question. Um, ooh, and that's a very tricky one to answer. 
Um, it's going to be kind of a weird answer, but it's going to be an honest answer. I, I, I would tell myself to put more stock in, in a personal following. In other words, you know, you, you do a lot of work for a brand. You put yourself out there under a brand. You, you push a brand, and that's a great way to get a start. And it's, it's easy to sort of have that overtake you, and you are more defined by the brand you work for than who you are yourself. Um, and, uh, I, w- I wish I could, I could do that differently. I sort of only tied my value to who I was with and nothing else. Mm. I don't know if that, if that makes sense. Like I said, it's kind of an obscure answer, mm. but, um, yeah, I guess that's what I would say. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's transferable into a lot of things too, where I think, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but. A lot of we all have this temptation to want to prove to ourselves that we're worth something or that we're significant, and so we look for large things to attach ourselves to to do that. You're saying it better, yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know goes back maybe to just bring this thing full circle to this idea of developing your voice, but also maybe you know a, a good way to. T- say it too is hey develop your voice and let and i've heard it said like just be yourself and let the people who are going to recognize that find you you know like that's that's very well said man and and if i can add you know i I mentioned that i i get a fair amount of outreach from people interested in in doing this and um i can't claim to be your i'm not your instagram expert i'm not your youtube expert right i i'm like i'm like the young old school because of when i came up like that's the way i'd put it you're right? a middle brother yeah right, i'm a middle brother um but what i do know is that in any platform authenticity is everything i i really do believe that i think it's more important that no matter what you want to do as long as you are you yes let the people find you um, you know, don't reinvent yourself trying to get to them. I think in the long run that, that matters a lot more. Yeah. That's great advice, man. And a great way to kind of circle in, in, in this podcast, man, I look forward to, you know, doing some more podcasts on the road. I think there's a lot more things that we could cover, but I appreciate you sitting down today and, and giving me some time. Yeah, man, this has been a lot of fun. Hopefully we get to do this together, uh, in, in person again down the road. I'd love to do it. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, I look forward to hanging out soon. Yep. Take care, Hunter. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.